On this podcast, I'm going to answer some of your questions which you have sent in to Boxing Science Nutrition on Instagram. So hopefully some of these questions which do come up quite frequently, I'm going to answer in more detail for you. So the first question was, what is the best thing to do post-fight nutritionally? We do know that in the combat sporting world and nutrition that there is a concept called reverse dieting. Basically, this has come from the bodybuilding population. And what it means is once we have dieted down to our making weight, then we have a fight. We almost go back up in a similar fashion as we came down. So go up step by step by step. In theory, this is a good concept. Could help restore metabolism and also reduce the fat mass overshooting, which is quite common when you do diet quite heavily for long periods. However, I don't recommend reverse dieting for many athletes. The reason for this is there can be many factors which can affect an athlete's mindset in terms of reverse dieting after a fight. If they have lost, they are likely to have low motivation to eat well and almost still stick to a certain diet. On the other hand, we've got athletes who may have had a really big win and they are wanting to celebrate and go out and probably see and socialise friends and family what they've had to sacrifice for many weeks to make weight. So in the first few days after a fight, I haven't got an issue with some athletes basically eating what they want. But it gets to a point when we need to educate them to say that literally going for weeks of eating what they want with low exercise is going to be detrimental for their health and their making weight in subsequent camps. So this is where we have a guide for our athletes where we say one to three days post fight, basically eat what you want, enjoy some time off. Coming towards the end of the week after you've fought, we do want our athletes to take part in some exercise. Now this doesn't have to be hard exercise what they've been doing, but we want them to move to get some kind of active recovery in there. This is going to help them in terms to move more to reduce that energy intake and that calorie surplus which is going to make them gain fat at higher rate. Then after that first week this is where we will kind of touch base with our athletes where we want them to just establish some healthy eating habits. Now this doesn't have to be a diet as such that can still include some foods which they enjoy but we want them to get into a regular routine of having breakfast, lunch and dinner containing some proteins, also some vegetables and some carbohydrates and then if they are wanting kind of a, a nice treat meal, they're doing this at the right times. Now they are back training more frequently. So this is going to be much better for them in terms of increasing their energy intake to where we want it to be, but also enjoy food. We want all our athletes to have healthy relationships with food. What we don't want is we don't want them to diet really low where they're hating dieting then they're getting into a really bad mindset where once they've had the fight, they're not thinking about healthy eating habits and they're going overboard with poor nutrition habits, including eating a lot of junk food and a lot of refined food, which they've been craving. What I would also say is if you are having high cravings of food after a fight and you are basically struggling to get full, so by this we mean that you're having a really big appetite and you're eating really a lot of junk food, it's likely that your previous diet to make weight was probably too low calories. Now, this isn't a gripe at, say, some nutritionists, or athletes because they will have had to have done that to make weight. But it's about actually reflecting on your past camp and actually seeing actually, if I gave myself a lot longer time to make the weight, would I have been on higher calories, giving myself a higher amount of food, which therefore I'm not going to have to be eating a boring, bland, low calorie diet as such. 
So therefore your cravings after the fight are going to be much less. Also, we want our athletes to be increase their energy intake by about 300 calories per day after the fight. And this is all the way through their kind of off-season camp. Some studies have been done by Malinson in 2013 and colleagues where they did a case study with some female athletes who were struggling with amenorrhea. So basically they were on very low energy intake. What they found was increasing energy intake just by 300 calories per day restored menses after three weeks to nine weeks. A good kind of energy intake value to try and hit for many athletes. So this could even just be done with a, an energy kind of snack, such as chocolate barring with the diet, or it could be adding a nice meal in or having an extra kind of portion size at breakfast, lunch or dinner. It could even be having a few drinks. This doesn't have to be, say, low calorie drinks. It could be enjoying some fruit juices, some smoothies, some milkshakes, etc. So getting some nice energy intake in through drinks rather than just food alone in that post-fight camp period. Lastly, on what you can do nutrition-wise post-fight, do you know a study by Kirsty Elliott Sale and colleagues in 2018 and what they had a look at, they had a look at the endocrine effects of low energy availability. These periods reduce resting metabolic rate, but they also decrease the leptin hormone. So leptin is a hormone which helps us feel full. The long-term dieting also decreases a hormone called ghrelin. Basically, this hormone makes us increase our appetite and make us more hungry and peckish. So because of this, where we're having a low metabolism and craving higher foods, after a fight, we want to try and curb this as quick as possible. So this is why in that post-fight period, I do want some of our athletes to enjoy some nice foods for the first few days after the fight. This is gonna reduce those cravings in the brain, but then increase the energy intake, which we know is required for our athletes post-fight. Nutrition is one of the most important areas for a boxer or combat athlete to master in their training camp. But it often becomes quite confusing and complex to do. So we've decided to give you the best possible guide to follow nutrition in the easiest and most effective way. We've developed the Boxing Science Recipe Book giving you a range of different recipes for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and for your snacks to integrate into your training camp. These are designed to help fuel performance and help make weight safely and effectively. Whether that's to fuel up for your sparring, to recover from intense sessions, or to implement on your rest days. Each one comes with a different category to make it easy to understand and start implementing into your training week. We offer macronutrient information, and also calories for each meal. And we're offering different ingredients, a step-by-step -step process on how to cook each meal. This is the most comprehensive nutrition product on the boxing market today, and you can access over 60 recipes at just a click of a button. So go and visit boxingscience.co.uk for more information and to get instant access to the Boxing Science recipe book. Question two was, how long does it take for a calorie deficit to show change in terms of body fat? We know that having a calorie deficit of around 500 calories per day will be the equivalent of losing around one pound of body mass per week. Now, a lot of factors can change the scale weight, and this can be hydration, it can be fiber intake, and it can be carbohydrate intake. So many athletes who are sometimes pushing themselves that hard, when they come to us nutritionally, they may see their scale weight actually go up in the first few days. Now, this is completely normal and it's important to reiterate this to everybody. The reason for this is we're probably going to give them a higher carbohydrate and fiber intake than they've probably been eating 
anyway, especially through a lot more fruit and vegetables, then this is going to cause them to basically on the scale be heavier in subsequent days. Now, I always say, especially with a lot of the athletes who do make weight quite hard and they are really starving themselves, to give it two weeks. So over two weeks, we will notice that the fiber intake and carbohydrate intake starts to level out over the two weeks. And then we should see that gradual scale weight change. If you have been eating poorly and you start a diet, you will notice that in the first week there is a sudden drop of weight. Now this is likely due to eating a lot less carbohydrates than you've been consuming. So if you've been consuming a highly processed refined diet before you start a diet, which many people do, you will see a big drop in weight. And this is a sign you're actually you've probably been eating rubbish. But after those first few days to a week, same again, this should start to plateau. If not, and it's still dropping quite rapidly, we know that you are probably under eating. So if this is you who is suddenly dropping weight for one, two weeks when you're starting a diet, your calorie intake is probably too low. What we want is for this calorie deficit to show change in terms of body fat. We may have a few days in the first week where it does drop quite suddenly, and then it will slowly plateau out to steadily dropping. Now, this is what we want to see. We always reiterate to our athletes that we want to see a slow change in the scale weight. We tell our athletes to weigh themselves two to three times a week. So this could be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, and do this every week. And what we should see is we should see that scale weight in terms to slowly drop, mainly be by 0.2 to 0.3 kilograms each time, or around 0.5 kilograms each week. Now, this is where we want most of our athletes to diet to, around 0.5 to a maximum of one kilogram per week. We want this because we know this slow rate of change is going to be better for them retaining muscle mass as they're dieting. And also, it's probably going to give them enough energy to get good training quality and have enough energy on board to reduce illness risk. How to reduce GI distress after a weigh-in. Now, many factors can cause an increased risk in GI distress. Now, this could be stomach cramping. It could be bloating. It could be loose stools in such as diarrhea. Now, many factors which can affect this is number one, making weight. On fight week, we do get many of our athletes to consume a low fiber diet. When they are consuming a low fiber diet, as well as having a lower kind of fluid intake in say the day previous, this is going to be basically cause the stomach to almost have nothing in it. So in terms of our digestive system, it's going to be dry and it's going to have no previous food for to help that digestion. So then because it's going to be dry and we're not going to have much food in, what will happen is if, say, we eat a high carbohydrate or high fiber meal straight away, it's going to have a really slow gastric time. So basically what's going to happen, it's going to stay in that stomach for as long as possible because it hasn't got any water in there to help that lubrication of that digestive system. And also it's got no previous kind of food intake to help those intestines to start working properly. In terms of research, a supplement which has been shown to reduce GI distress is glutamine. Now, glutamine is an amino acid and it has been shown to improve gut permeability. Now, gut permeability reduces with exercise in the heat. So this has been done in participants in ultra marathons or doing a running session in a heated environment. Now, this heat stress reduces gut permeability. So actually has an increased risk of GI distress, such as loose stools and cramping. A study by Pew et al. in 2017 they gave participants a dose of glutamine from 0.25 grams per kilogram to 0.9 grams per kilogram. And what they found is this reduced GI symptoms in participants compared to a control group who didn't use glutamine. Therefore, if you are a combat sport athlete who does struggle with GI distress after a weigh-in, 
it may be wise to supplement glutamine in the days previous and also on the day of and day after a weigh-in. Now this study was also done earlier by Zul et al in 2014 and they used a range of 0.9 grams per kilogram of glutamine and they took it three times per day, so breakfast, lunch and dinner. So that 0.9 gram per kilogram dose was split into three doses. What they found, similar to the study by Pew et al, reduced GI symptoms in participants and it also reduced a heat shock expression in the gut. So actually improving GI gastrointestinal health in participants. Another supplement which also been shown to have benefit on GI distress is probiotics. Now probiotics can help the gut microflora flourish. So probiotics have been shown to actually reduce illness symptoms. Our gut is our key innate immune system. So a lot of our immune cells are derived from the gut. So having a healthy gut helps reduce illness. Now also it does help absorb nutrients. So as we know if that gut permeability is actually reduced that the probiotics can help that good bacteria in the gut so we can absorb key nutrients to help keep our gut in good condition. So a study by Shing et al in 2014 actually showed that it did reduce GI symptoms in runners who consumed a probiotic strain. Now in terms of probiotics, we usually want around 10 billion cultured forming units in one tablet and have this once per day. Or you could have two Yakults per day, one at breakfast and one at dinner to help improve your gut function. Lastly, what can also affect GI distress around a weight is the dehydration. When we're making weight, many athletes will be in a dehydrated state. The more dehydrated state we're in, the less fluid we're going to have in our body to help our digestive system. So it gets to a point is when people are pushing their bodies so hard in terms of dehydration, that their gastrointestinal tract, so even their esophagus, can become really dry. And this as well, in terms of in our stomach and our intestines, can also slow gastric emptying. So basically, once we are really dehydrated, we really need to restore that fluid back into our body, into our digestive health, help us absorb nutrients and food. The bigger weight cut you're doing, or the more dehydration's occurring, what we advise is, the longer time you need to rehydrate and the less food you can have in the hours post weighing. A study by Ray et al in 1990, what they did is they got participants to dehydrate to 4%, which to us in terms of in the boxing world is probably 1% or 2% more than we want most of our athletes to do a weight cut to make weight. And what they found was having a 7% carbohydrate drink after this exercise when they were 4% dehydrated had a higher risk of GI distress compared to doing it euhydrated. So in terms of some participants who didn't do the 4% dehydration protocol. The reason for this is because of the lack of fluid in their stomach, it slowed that gastric emptying. That fluid back towards our cells in terms of extracellular and intracellular, it stayed in the gut for a lot longer. So then it's going to cause a lot of GI distress because it's not getting transported to the areas where we want it to be. So what we always advise to all of our athletes is you want to rehydrate before you refuel after a weigh-in. And you want to do this with kind of a lower carbohydrate but still containing electrolytes drink. Do this to try and replace 150% of the body mass you've lost in the weight cut. Do it slowly so you want to drink around 1 to 1.5 litres per hour. Once you restore this, then start thinking about carbohydrates in terms of liquids and also foods. So rehydrating appropriately after weighing is one of the key aspects to do after weighing to reduce GI distress.
The next question was what to do nutrition wise for illness and injury. Now in the previous podcast, I have gone through nutrition supplements as well as nutritional guidelines to help recover from illness and injury. So I'm not going to go through that on this podcast. What I'm going to go through is kind of what do we think causes this illness and injury? I'd say if you are an athlete who is regularly getting injured and also getting unwell, it's likely consuming a low energy intake. And this energy intake is probably a lot lower than your body requires for it to function healthily. So if you are one of these athletes who is getting unwell or getting injured frequently, my biggest piece of advice is we need to increase energy intake. Now I'd advise increasing it by 300 to 500 calories per day. If you are having issues with you not going to make weight and this calorie intake going to be too high, what I would say is this is likely going to help you recover from the illness or injury much quicker rather than frequently getting ill in camp, which is going to cause mistraining days, which then again is going to cause you to be further back in terms of making weight. A study in 2018 by Drew et al. Actually, they associated low energy availability with increased risk of illness in the month prior. So if you are getting ill frequently, then again, it's probably likely that you're consuming energy intake, which is too low for optimal function of our immune system and our health. A review in 2021 by Chichella and colleagues, they had a look at nutrition and immune function. And what they found was in terms of reducing illness, certain nutritional strategies can help. A key one being carbohydrate intake. So if I have an athlete who is constantly getting ill or is reporting symptoms of illness or fighting infection whilst training, one of the main things I'll do is actually increase carbohydrate intake, especially around training sessions. Now, the reason for this is our immune system is sometimes fueled by glucose. Our white blood cells are carbohydrate dependent as well as a lot of our inflammatory markers. So this is really key to help us get over this infection and this illness quicker. In addition, the carbohydrate intake can also reduce the stress hormone cortisol. So we know intensive periods of stress is also linked to increasing the illness of risk. So having carbohydrate intake around training sessions is going to reduce that stress hormone cortisol as well as provide key fuel for our immune system to help us reduce that risk of illness. As well, when an athlete is ill, always recommend them to supplement with vitamin D. I recommend our athletes to supplement with around 4,000 IU vitamin D3 per day during periods that they are ill or injured. I also recommend them to use this throughout the year unless it's sunny outside and you can get direct contact from the sun for 30 minutes per day. So a lot of our innate immune cells, such as our macrophages and T cells, these have vitamin D receptors. So once our vitamin D kind of level is low and it's usually below 75 nanomoles per litre, we know this increases the risk of illness in athletes. So this is where I supplement a lot of our athletes with around 4,000 IU of vitamin D3 per day on the days that they are ill, but also afterwards. So to review, if you're an athlete who is getting ill frequently and getting injured in camp, I'd certainly recommend you increase in energy intake. Now, I do recommend this primarily being from carbohydrates around training sessions, but also increasing protein and fat intake is also likely going to be required to help increase that energy intake and also to make food much more enjoyable. As well, I'd certainly say supplementing with vitamin D during illness and then adding some vitamin C and zinc. So zinc, 75 milligrams per day. 
and also vitamin C around three grams per day during periods of illness can help you get over that illness at a quicker rate compared to having none alone. This has been shown in meta-analyses done during periods of illness, vitamin C and zinc can help reduce that severity of the illness. The last question now Q and A is, what body fat percentage is too low for amateur boxing? Now all the data that we have collected with the latter hour athletes is very similar to a lot of the data in the studies. So we certainly don't want many of our female athletes being below 12% body fat. And if they are, we don't want this for long periods. We know that having body fat less than 12% in females and certainly going to single digits similar to males is a key sign of low energy availability and also a sign of potential amenorrhea and a loss of menstrual cycle. And this is linked to a lot of issues in terms around female reproductive and endocrine health and also in terms of increasing injury risks such as stress fractures. So in terms of female amateur boxers, I would certainly recommend them not to go below around 12% body fat. Now in terms of younger female athletes, this could be less or more, but we don't know yet in terms of research, isn't that up to date in terms of young female athletes. But certainly in older female athletes, this is a certain percentage that I would recommend female athletes not to go below. As well, because of amateur boxing, it's likely they're gonna to need to make weight for many weeks and also over the year. So this is why I certainly wouldn't recommend many females to go below that 12% body fat. In terms of males, this is likely to be around single digits. Many male athletes or combat sport athletes who are fighting, usually around 8% body fat done with the Isaac Skinfall method. This could be as low as 5% using a DEXA scan. But same again, because they are making weight in terms of amateur boxers every week, I'd actually want the boxers to be at higher percentage body fat. I wouldn't mind many amateur boxing athletes being around 10% body fat, if not slightly above. Now, the reason for this is because they're making weight so often, having a higher percentage body fat is likely going to give them more energy intake. So they are going to get better training quality. And this is what many people fail to remember in amateur boxing, that if you are making weight frequently and you are reducing that training quality for making weight, it's likely that for you to get in the ring, you're not going to be as good as if you was training frequently of a higher intensity and a better quality. So many athletes that are doing amateur boxing, I'd certainly recommend uh, in terms of body fat percentage, being around 10% in terms of males and certainly not below 12% in females. This is going to be really key to improve that training quality throughout an amateur boxing season. As I mentioned previously in terms of young female boxers, in terms of body fat percentage, this is also very similar for young male boxers. So in terms of body fat percentage, I wouldn't be convinced of recommending a certain body fat percentage for young female and male boxers, especially in adolescence. Now we know that during adolescence, there is vast periods of growth and maturity. And this is something what we want to promote because we know it's linked to better bone health and a better metabolism. So for young female and male amateur boxers in adolescence, so in the age ranges from 13 towards 18, I wouldn't push them that hard to make weight. I'd say if a young amateur boxer is losing more than two to three kilograms each time to make weight, that I would advise them to move up a weight category. 
Now, many boxing coaches may think that they are going to be undersized, but for long-term health, in terms of metabolism and bone health, is going to be much more beneficial. This is going to give them better training quality and be of a healthier metabolism for when they are growing older and potentially making weight as they get into the professional ranks. Thanks for watching and listening to this nutrition Q&A podcast. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to send a direct message to boxingscience underscore nutrition on Instagram. If you are wanting to see any more nutrition Q&As on our podcast, then please subscribe to our Boxing Science channel on YouTube.